so we'll get started. Um, so this is the, I think, my fifth episode of my podcast um, called Breaching Extinction. And then we're also filming this for um, Adam Ernster's documentary, 73. Um, but I have Paul Weatherford with me today, who's been here since 2008, a Michigan native. Um, uh, he's a boat captain, and so he's been out here for the last, that's math, that's... What is it, 2019? Like 11 years? 11, 12 years. Um, So I just want to hear a little bit about your experience as like a whale watch captain and your experience with the Southern residents. So if you want to just tell me about like what your life is like day to day, that'd be awesome. Oh, well, yeah, a day to day, um, you know, right now compared to what it was 10 years ago, it's certainly changed a lot as far as whale watching in in the San Juan Islands and the British Columbia and Gulf Islands. Um, you know, we used to have a lot more consistent, you know, approach to whale watching here mm-hmm. and, uh, it's, it's really changed in some really great ways and some not so great ways as long as I've been here. But, um, you know, when I first started here, we wouldn't see humpback whales. Yeah. Um, and now we see humpback whales all the time. All which the is time. Incredible. Yeah. And, uh, we used to see Southern resident killer whales starting in April mm-hmm. and see them through September or October. And now... We're lucky if we see them by July. Yeah, it's crazy for sure. Yeah. Um, so I know that you talked about like some different changes in the environment overall. Like, what have you seen? I know that you had mentioned to Adam something about the salmon. Like, there used to be so much that you like you just saw all the time, and now you're not seeing it. Is that pretty accurate? Well, no, not really. I mean, historically, mm-hmm. you know, even in the past fifty or sixty years, there. Mm-hmm. Just anecdotally, I know that there was a lot more salmon here. I know mm-hmm. from accounts of people that have lived here their whole lives or mm-hmm. have been, you know, had generations of family uh, on the islands that used to be able to catch fish really consistently. You used to be able to go and catch big kings right mm-hmm. off the north shore of the island um, kind of year-round. Um, park rangers that I used to work for would would go over and, and cast for salmon mm-hmm. coming out of Fossil Bay on Susha Island and yeah. catch fish easily, and even in the 1980s. Um, and uh, now you have to work to catch salmon. You have to, you know, and it's, and the runs have gone down even since I've been here in the short, you know, just over a decade that I've been fishing in the islands. Um, it's it's pretty noticeable. Um, the king salmon fishing used to be even more dependable than it is now in that short of a mm-hmm. period of time. Um, pink runs have gone down. Coho runs have gone down. Um, so, I mean, it's definitely noticeable. Nice. I mean, not nice. That's, yeah, that's definitely, that's rough and I feel like that's pretty consistent among like you know scientific community and like everybody else like that you guys notice a difference and that's kind of crazy um how has like had that impacted your job at all because I know like do you do fishing charters or I did I did salmon fishing charters for some years and then I stopped doing that Mm -hmm. um left it up to -hmm. guys that are more hungry for fishing than I am I don't um necessarily want to invest my time in that it's hard work and it's uh you know, kind of like beating your head against the wall because it's you get a, a real expectation from your clients mm-hmm. to produce fish, and this isn't Alaska. And right. even if it was Alaska, Alaska is not doing very well anymore either. Yeah, um, salmon-wise, salmon are collapsing population-wise, and you know, over the entire West Coast, and have been for a long time. So, yeah, um, you're never going to really meet, you know, the expectation of of, of your, catching all of that salmon. Yeah, of yeah, catching all the salmon. So it's not something that I'm really interested in, in doing anymore and sacrificing my body day in and day out to do it. So, Understandable. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about how, like, whale-watching regulations have changed throughout your career? Oh, sure, yeah. That's an easy one. Um, 
you know, in 2010 or yeah, 2010, it was still a hundred yards, mm-hmm. hundred yards, no approach. There weren't even real regulations in Canada. Like the, the actual talk in the law was basically mm-hmm. like, just don't harass the whales. Mm-hmm. Um, don't get in front of the whales. When I first started, people would still use the term leapfrogging, which is something that's not done anymore. Yeah, what is um, that? That's kind of what they used to do, um, you know, especially in the 90s when mm-hmm. whale watching got a lot more popular. Obviously, I wasn't here. This is all just what I've been told over the years right. through different mm-hmm. avenues of, you know, conversation. But um, basically, you know, the boats would all get in a line and mm-hmm. one boat would basically, you know, get up ahead of the whales, turn in front of the whales, park in front of the whales, uh-huh. the whales would go under the boat. They'd shut, you know, they'd shut their engines off and the yeah. whales would go, you know, by the boat or under the boat. Okay. And then, you know, that boat would drift to the back of the line and then the next boat would go. Wow. And it would like, this is just what I've mm-hmm. been told. I've never actually seen that, but right. from what I've heard that that's kind of how it was it back in the days of less regulations in the, in the eighties and nineties. Mm-hmm. And so it was a lot of people kind of casually parking near the whales and getting those beautiful views of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and as more boats, you know, there were more companies that obviously became more and more, um, mm-hmm. invasive into those animals lives. Yeah. So, um, it, gradually became frowned upon and then you know it was the 100 uh, yard rule was in effect when i started here mm-hmm. um, and i'm not sure when they instituted that but i'd imagine a while before probably before 2000 yeah i have to imagine and so in the united states you mm-hmm. could you had to be careful you had to be mm-hmm. 100 yards away from the whales do not get in front of the whales um and uh but there was very little law enforcement um, out there, Soundwatch and Straightwatch were the only real, mm-hmm. you know, you wouldn't see very much. Noah was never around. WDFW yeah. would rarely be around. They mm-hmm. didn't have very much money in their budget for that then. And uh, and in Canada, it was like, well, if you're in Canada, you can basically just don't harass the whales. You know, don't get too close to them. But mm-hmm. it's not that big of a deal if, you know, you don't have to worry about being within 100 yards. If the whales turn toward you, you didn't feel like you you know, we're going to get a ticket or something right. for being within 100 yards mm-hmm. if you're paralleling at 100 yards, which is what we followed anyway. I mean, right. in Canada, we were following a 100-meter yeah. rule. And, um, but if the whales turned toward you, you just shut them down and let them go by, and you wouldn't feel like, you know. Yeah. It's a pretty non-invasive way to whale watch in general, but right. if there's a lot of boats, that, that can be its own. a little hectic. Yeah, absolutely. And so it was like that until 2015, maybe. I can't remember exactly when. Nice. Um, and then when they change it, and then they, you know, we went to 200, 200 yards in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, they instituted the uh, kind of some of the West Side rules, which was you know always staying a quarter mile offshore, never getting closer than a quarter mile to the West Side of San Juan Island, mm-hmm. um, and then creating the half mile buffer zone, mm-hmm. half mile north and south and offshore of mm-hmm. Lime Kiln Point, and you know in my opinion that's all optics. That was all just mainly to make boats look further away from the whales around what was called whale watch and still kind of is whale watch park mm-hmm. off the west side of san juan island so to keep the boats further away from the whales in general yeah because oftentimes it would look bad if boats are you know 100 or 200 yards off the whales and the whales are right on shore because yeah so then there's like you're there's kind nowhere of for them to go there, yeah. yeah there's nowhere for the animals to go even though the whales are foraging tight to shore because the it drops off really deep right there off the west side and the mm-hmm. salmon are there so they're hunting you know but, yeah, and, you know, I think those rules are great regardless. Like, mm-hmm. I've never had a problem with any of the rules. I mean, I see no reason why it shouldn't be two or 300 yards, right. you know, regardless. But, uh, 
Yeah, and then with the new rules in Canada, I mean that was that was a big one this year. Mm-hmm. Um, and now we're it's illegal to watch Southern Resident Killer Whales in Canada, where ten years ago that's there wasn't insane. really any rules. Yeah, that's um, wild. Surrounding them, other than you know, don't aggressive, don't be aggressive with them, don't try not to get in front of them, stuff like that. Right. Um, so that you know, those are those are big changes. Yeah, big changes for sure. Do you know if um, Canada has taken any initiatives to work on like the salmon crisis that they have there, or? Well, I mean, from what I've, like, read, I mean, anything that they're doing is they're just continuously developing more in the Fraser River. Mm. And so any sort of bringing more commercial vessel traffic into the Fraser, mm-hmm. you know, any anything that, you know, adding any more industry into that, I mean, that's going to be the final death blow for the southern residents because they're so dependent on that stock of fish mm-hmm. that they won't, I mean... Yeah. At least, or they won't just come in here. They just won't come in here anymore. Yeah. If they're going to survive without the Fraser River run, they can't come into the San Juan Islands during the summer. They need to stay out. They need to be hoping for bigger runs going to the Columbia and stay offshore. Yeah. You know, I don't know. I mean. Which, that's what it sounds like, because we talked to Deborah Giles last week, and she was saying that, like, you know, they seem to look healthy, and, yeah. like, you know, they seem to be, or... Maybe many it wasn't of, many of them else, are, but yeah, they look healthy. It seems like they're getting like you know they're getting the food that they need, but it's just not here, which it's unfortunate because they've been here for so long. Right. Um, yeah, that's kind of crazy. So, I'm guessing like for you, if they're well, obviously if it's in Canadian waters, you're not going to go watch the residents. But um, do you think the additional like hundred yards to stay away from the residents in the U.S. has that made your job a little bit more challenging or? I personally don't think so. I, I think that there's a lot of people around that would probably say that it does. Mm-hmm. Um, I tell people that it's, you know, these days especially, that it's a privilege to be able to go watch Southern Resident Killer Whales. Um, given their status and, mm-hmm. you know, the myriad of threats that they have, mm-hmm. you know, threatening their very, you know, existence right now. They could be gone so soon. Right. Um it, yeah, I don't think watching Southern Resident Killer Whales from 300 yards is a big deal at all. Like, yeah. I personally, I love being far away from whales, and I don't think that people need to be, should need to be up close yeah. to whales to be able to appreciate the whales. Because if you watch a whale breach from 300 yards away, it's still incredible. Yeah. It's, like, amazing. And Southern Residents tend to jump around a lot, you know, especially when they're foraging, you know, off the bottom end of the islands. Uh, you get a lot of playful behavior. And right. we got to see some of that, actually, this year. For the first time, it was kind of refreshing. Because uh, I haven't seen that in quite a long time. I had some beautiful yeah. days in the end of August and early September. That's awesome. Doing them from, from more than 300 yards away. and But, you know, and spending very short periods of time with them, too. But, mm-hmm. you know, being lucky in the abundance of other humpbacks and transient killer whales and minkies yeah. around to help, you know, give people a really well-rounded, you know... View of like the ecosystem yeah, and all the different because there. there's so much more than just killer whales. Oh yeah, everybody puts the focus on the killer whales. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, I've definitely noticed that. Like working on different boats, everyone's like, "Oh, like are we gonna see a killer whale today?" And we don't always, but seeing the humpbacks is really awesome too. Um, but yeah, on the <laughs> no, Lord, I've got this cat smacking me, and then my dog is barking over there, so this is nice. Um, but yeah, no. It's, like, there's so many other animals out here, and people just don't even realize it. And then you get out here, and you, like, see them, and it's really cool to see people, like, get inspired and whatnot. Um, Can you tell us kind of how you end up, you got into this field and, like, you know, what keeps you here? Oh, wow. Um, Well, I grew up in a boating family, and I've always kind of been near boats, and I've I've been a freshwater fisherman my entire life. Um, 
I came to Orcas Island because of work. My wife founded a job mm -hmm. here doing some environmental education, and I took a job working for the state of Washington, and, you know, we fell in love with the islands. Um, it's just an incredible place, and we wanted to try to figure out a way to stay here, mm -hmm. and um, the job I was working driving boats for the state of Washington was, was not going to facilitate um, a lifestyle that I was interested in living um, and staying in the islands here because it, it's expensive. It's expensive, and um, so I met the owner of our company on, on mm -hmm. the same dock that I was working for the state and he, he told me he had a job for me driving water taxi boats uh, mm -hmm. when he was just starting the company off doing water taxi and uh, some bottom fishing we, we didn't even do salmon fishing then we just did a little bit of bottom fishing mm -hmm. some water taxi and we had a one whale watching boat and we were you know we run one trip a day with eight or ten people and mm -hmm. um, that was mainly Bo that was driving that boat and so I got my captain's license and uh, he told me he was going to pay me good money to do it. Nice. So I, I did it. Very nice. <laughs> yeah. That way you, like, I think it's a... Because I love living here. I wanted to stay here. Yeah, no, this is, like, a gorgeous place to live. I think that you have a unique perspective, too, because a lot of people are in it for the whales because they love the whales, which you do love the whales. But, like, at the end of the day, it's I think it's a, more relatable to people that you have to earn a living, you know? Because oh, in absolutely. the environmental field, it's so hard to get into it because... You know, there's so many unpaid internships and education is expensive and oh, yeah. 900 other reasons. So, yeah, um, I, have, I have two bachelor's degrees from the University of Oregon in environmental yeah. science and geography. And this wasn't where I was going. I was going to do research. I was going to do mm -hmm. I was interested in doing river river rehab mm -hmm. restoration stuff. And mm -hmm. I've always been interested in the water. I just never knew I was going to be in the salt. Yeah, <laughs> I was assumed I'd be on <laughs> land because the rivers were really my first love. Really? Oh, yeah. Tell me about it. Oh, I mean, I, I studied fluvial geomorphology, and I've always been really into river fishing, trout oh, fishing, um, nice. like barbless, dry fly only in in Oregon. I did a lot of a lot of fishing um, in some really beautiful places, and fishing for me has always not been about necessarily even catching. Just mm -hmm. it was an excuse for me to put myself in like really incredibly beautiful places by myself and yeah because i always need something to do i'm like a busy body and oh, like, not you I, I can't just like <laughs> i can't just walk on the beach i need to look for you have agates. i can't just like be yeah. on a boat i need i want to go fishing it mm -hmm. I, you know i want to there's i need a goal right so fishing was always a way that i could put myself in really beautiful places and appreciate mm -hmm. a place and i always tell people that i don't even you know the mm -hmm. People would always ask me back when I lived in Oregon mm -hmm. how the fishing was, and I was like, I don't know. It was fine. <laughs> I but I saw some incredibly beautiful yeah. areas of this river, and it was mm -hmm. serene and yeah. So yeah, Oregon, I'm convinced is like the U.S.'s best kept secret because yeah, like incredible. I feel like so many people don't know um, to vacation there or to go there, and like the first time I went there, like my jaw was just dropped like the whole time. Mm -hmm. I was like, is it really this gorgeous? It's, it's incredible. Like it's yeah. such a great state. Um. Yeah, that's really awesome. But you ended up in this field because, you, you know, you need to earn a living to yeah. <laughs> to survive like most people. So, yeah, that's totally relatable. And I, you know, I was a naturalist with the same company, you know, just for the listeners so they know. But, um, again, like the same reasons because it's so hard to get in, into research. Like I love research, but, you know, you have to do so many unpaid things. And that's just really unrealistic sometimes. Right. Um but, yeah, this is, like, I think that this kind of paints a perspective of how the declining population could affect, like, it's not just, like, an ecological thing. It's economic and it's political and social. Um, and if the southern residents weren't here, I'm sure that that would, like, impact your job. Obviously, there's other whales, but, like, if there weren't killer whales here, like, you know, I'm sure that it would look a lot different than it does now. Yeah, yeah, I mean, 
There would certainly be a giant hole. I mean, that wouldn't be filled very easily. I mean, the transient, you know, boom that's been going on the past few years mm-hmm. is definitely a sign of the fact that there will always be probably some killer whales swimming through the islands, mm-hmm. you know, throughout the year. But it'll it will never be like it was. Mm-hmm. Um, the way you know back when you would see J's, K's, and L's all every day in July, every day in yeah. August, all three pods together foraging off the west side, super pods for days. Mm-hmm. You know, um, that that'll never happen again. Yeah. And weren't you saying that you used to be able to like be able to predict where they were going or be like, oh, we oh. just saw them here. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's how I learned whale watching, and I think that's how many people that are still in the industry, you know think about it because we have days where even this summer you know we'd have days where i'm talking with guys that have been driving boats here for 20 years and you'd see j's and k's meet up at a certain place and then Mm -hmm. continue going um and you hear people say like oh it's just like the good old days Mm -hmm. um which we just don't see them but yeah you'd be able to predict you know they come in based on the tides we've got Mm -hmm. a big flood you've got j's and k's coming in Mm -hmm. a big push coming up if they get past Kellett bluff on san juan island you Mm -hmm. know they're going to go up to the fraser and they're probably going to forage up there for two days and then they're going to turn around and come back and either that or depending on the tides you know they're gonna they're gonna get up to point roberts Mm -hmm. and then they're gonna push back to the southeast to Alden Bank and then mm. they're going to hit Alden North North Alden Marker mm-hmm. and turn and come back and I mean I've heard people call it over the radio like we'll see them at East Point at noon mm-hmm. tomorrow and sure enough I mean they're there you could predict it yeah um, and, and in my mind that all really that all really changed after Granny died like, really yeah. I mean the most mm-hmm. the most ma- I mean before Granny died the year before that she died Mm -hmm. they were already starting to be less present Mm -hmm. um but the year after it was i mean it's been it's been night and day since yeah and that first year that she was gone they were they were Mm -hmm. still here Mm -hmm. but they were not here very much Mm -hmm. and then the second year after she was gone they were barely here at all right and uh and i i really i mean and it's all just opinion but i really believe that she used to drag those whales in here (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, and the J's the J's would make the K's come in and then the L's would eventually come in cuz they yeah. wanted to they wanted to hang out with the J's and K's and make babies with the J's and K's. Yeah. And the L's would never come in. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've rarely seen L's go anywhere north of East Point. Oh wow. R- rarely L pod would ever even go past Kellett Bluff. If you had all three pods on the west side mm-hmm. and J's and K's went north past Limekiln Light, then Els would get to Kellett Bluff, follow them up, and flip and come back down. Huh. And J's and K's would continue up, or maybe half of the J's and half of the K's would continue up, and the other half, mm-hmm. you know, a, a group and B group of J's would split. Yeah. And then part of them would go up to the Fraser, and part of them would stay back down and frolic on the west side with the L's. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, I mean, some years even, like, you wouldn't even see half of the L's. Some years half of the L's wouldn't even come in. Mm-hmm. They wouldn't even go past Discovery, so... Oh my gosh! Yeah, and it was they were they were very predictable. I mean, yeah, that's like so different from the bigs because I feel like the bigs are not predictable at all. You're just like, oh, where are we gonna find them, and which group are we gonna find today? Certain families, like when when the T sixty five A's show up in. May or June, mm-hmm. you're like, sweet, we're going to see the T6. They're going to swim laps around Orcas Island for the next two weeks. Yep. And they do it. Yep. They, they do it. I mean, this year, I think we had almost all the T65s, if not just a few of them around for our, the better part of a month. Yeah. Which was great. But but the bigs certainly are, there is no real rhyme or reason to them at all. Yeah. 
It's really interesting to see kind of like their migratory behavior. Well, they're not really migrating, but their travel behavior, at least. I mean, I think that just kind of shows that there's different traditions and cultures like within the family groups um, and just kind of like relates that back to them not being so different from us, like at the end of the day. But that's, I mean, that's interesting. I didn't realize that the elves like didn't really like to come up into certain areas and yeah, they're just more, they're loners, you know, they're more like offshore. They, yeah. they're more wild. Mm-hmm. You know, the Jays spend more time in the San Juan Islands than in, than any of the other two groups. Mm-hmm. K's next. Yeah. You know, and in my opinion, I mean, the L's and the J's just like to have sex with the K's. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that's kind of, and the L's come in specifically mm-hmm. looking for those other two families in mm-hmm. the summer. For procreation reasons, because mm-hmm. the elves are pretty self-sufficient mm-hmm. on the outside, of, you know, in the western strait of San Juan de Fuca and offshore mm-hmm. of Vancouver Island and mm-hmm. Washington. And I mean, elves went down to San Francisco this year, right? They got yeah. the elves in San Francisco. Yeah. I mean, those animals, they're they're, they're real just doing co- what they do. Yeah, yeah, they're doing what they do. Yeah, it's that's interesting. I can only imagine like you know traveling that far, but for them, it's probably nothing because their bodies are designed to do that. Mm-hmm. Which it's crazy. Um, do you have any particular like memories that stick out, like about the Southern residents or anything of that nature? Oh, I mean, yeah, I have some of the best whale watching memories of my career here have all been with Southern residents. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's always great to watch the bigs do mm-hmm. their hunting and you know yeah. they're killing stuff. Yes. <laughs> um, but you know, especially my first couple years here when it was all still very new to me and fresh, and we mm-hmm. would you'd get super pods for days where you you know it'd be you'd get to see two or three super pods over the course of you know a couple weeks Mm -hmm. and where they would you know you literally have like 85 86 killer whales all together in one place i'll never forget one time where all three pods were in between saturna island and tumbo island and tumbo channel Mm -hmm. on the inside of boiling reef there Mm -hmm. 80 something killer whales there's probably five five or six whale watching boats watching them and 15 Canadian fishing boats driving right in the mix of them Mm -hmm. and it's just a full on you know socialization with the whales are going every which way Mm -hmm. we were on scene with them for 45 minutes or an hour in fact I remember because I had my my uh, sister-in-law my Mm -hmm. wife's sister on the boat that day and we're just you know we're all shut down mainly for the entire time that we're there just trying to reposition trying to stay out of the way Mm -hmm. and they're I mean, I probably saw 150 or 200 breaches oh my gosh. in over an hour. That's insane. I got so many incredible pictures. Like, mm-hmm. so many of the great photos that I've ever taken come mm-hmm. from a certain few days yeah. where it was so easy to get incredible shots. Mm-hmm. I mean, I saw one whale breach next to, like, a 12-foot little fishing boat, and so much water went into the boat, they had to, like, head for shore and beach it because the whale oh breached, like, 10 feet off their boat oh and Lord. splashed, like, 100 gallons of water in their little aluminum fishing boat, oh and they had to run over to the Saturna shoreline and, like, bail out the boat. Gosh. You know? Can you imagine being in that little boat? Oh, I've seen... I mean, yeah, I, I can, but, I mean... Yeah, that's... I mean, it's stuff like that. That 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 day always will stick out in my mind, and, you know, watching big groups of whales surf mm-hmm. the container ship wakes and... Mm-hmm. You know, do the meeting ceremonies. One time I'll never forget was when um, I think it was J's and K's met right off of Lummy Island. And this was during the baby boom. Mm-hmm. This was in whatever, 2012, 
2012 through 2014, mm-hmm. I think, was when all those yeah. all those babies were getting born, whenever mm-hmm. that was. And um, Jay's and Kay's met. One was coming up Rosario, and one was coming down from the Strait of Georgia, and they met right at Lummi Island. That's kind of a weird place for two Southern resident groups to meet. Right. And they came head on, and then they went into this wild social mm-hmm. lineup that with Mount Baker and Lummi Island in the background like a crystal clear flat calm day oh my gosh that's one that day I don't know if you've ever seen my triple spy hop picture where the I where three not. whales are spy hopping and one is leaning against another one oh my I'll God. show it to you yes. after this you'll have to send um, it maybe we can uh, put it on the Instagram it's an incredible one it's yeah it's just pure love oh my gosh and you can see you can see the emotion in it and yeah. everything and these animals were it was like a three females all spy mm-hmm. hopping right next to each other and leaning on each other like on this Aww. epic august day so sweet yeah incredible like um, and you just don't see that stuff anymore yeah I, when they're when they're all together and they're all foraging hard off the bottom end mm-hmm. you know this past two years you don't see them in big groups socializing and I, it's not that they aren't doing it but it, we're just not seeing we're just it. not seeing it yeah it, they're doing it further out in the straight for sure not, when they're here they're here for business they're here for food yeah absolutely no, that makes sense. You know, there, there's no time for all that other stuff when you've got a mission and you come here for one reason. Um, yeah, and I mean, this is all just my opinion, but... <laughs> no, I mean, it's definitely, yeah, it's definitely, like, valuable to hear different perspectives, too, because I think we all have a different way of thinking. And um, also, like, you know, your experience is going to be different than, like researchers or people that work for, like, the state and whatnot. So it's definitely, I think hearing what everyone has to say definitely can help spark new ideas and new conversations about like conservation and like what are the whales doing and this and that so it's definitely valuable like you know yeah. just it just even though you weren't writing it down and you know doing statistics i think it's still important information to share oh absolutely i think any data that we can mm-hmm. you know any anything that we can get about the whales is important for understanding you know the mm-hmm. dire situation that they're in yeah it's like it's really interesting just to see like you know, to work around an endangered species. Because in school, I've, like, read, you know, a lot about them. And um, this is, I think, the first group that I've spent a decent amount of time with. Like, I, you know, I studied abroad in Tanzania, and I was, like, around species that were endangered, but, like, not quite like the southern residents here. Like, there's such a focus on them. And it seems like, you know, these animals are so ingrained in the community and, like, the culture and just, like, way of life here. So it's you know, I think it's taken a little bit more seriously, but, and everyone loves killer whales, but at the same time, it's like, you know, part of me kind of fears, it's like, we can't save the killer whales, or we're going to be able to save anything else, because people love killer whales so much, Um, so, that's just something I think about sometimes. Yeah, well, I mean, I say it on the boat all the time, you know, anytime, if there's an animal that eats another animal and that animal is a prized food resource for human beings and that animal is not going to survive mm-hmm. uh, I, I don't I don't know that there's any any hope for if you know if lions only ate cows mm-hmm. there would be no lions left yeah that's true there would be no lions left you know mm-hmm. and the reason I mean it's very obvious looking at the bigs and the versus the southern residents what's going on yeah so. it's absolutely human impact and yeah, you yeah. know it's there's no doubt about it it's interesting. We um, last episode we talked about how Granny basically has seen all these changes because you know things have been pretty consistent for the whales for like hundreds of years, and then Granny was pretty much like the only one who was able to see it, like just like that rapid change. Oh yeah. So. 
Yeah, she's the original gangster. She when she died, she had bullets lodged in her that were that were fired into her from fishermen. That's insane. I mean, and they never obviously they never found her. They weren't able to do a necropsy on her. But um, from things that I read from, you know, in the thirties and forties, and so, I mean, people would just fire handguns at those whales. Yeah. She had she had bullet wound scars on her body. Yeah. A true badass, honestly. <laughs> yeah. That's insane. I like it's so interesting to see the change of like, you know, the Lummy people started out with like, you know, f- working alongside them and like fishing alongside them, or at least that's my understanding of it. And then, you know, colonizers came in and then started, you know, making salmon. And then I guess they're shooting the whales and then capturing the whales. And now everyone loves the whales and there's so many protections. It's just interesting. Oh, yeah. To see. I mean, the Canadians put anti anti aircraft gun on a couple islands up in toward the north end of Vancouver Island. Do you know about this? No. Oh, yeah. You should research that one. Yeah. Yeah. The Canadians, in an effort to stop the southern residents from eating, from impacting the salmon runs for fishing, sure. they mounted two, like, anti-aircraft or, like, um, like automatic, like, m- you know, rifles on cliff sides. Oh, my God. Uh, we actually saw one one time up past Campbell River. Oh, my god. And we're planning on literally annihilating southern residents when they drove through with you know well or northern residents with these crazy like anti-aircraft machine guns and they actually never use them from what i know i'm pretty sure that they just like but that was that that was their plan jesus i think it was in the 50s jesus because they're like these whales are eating too many of our fish that's brutal so i mean but that's a pretty classic human perspective absolutely no it definitely is and i think we're starting to see a shift but there's still that idea of like you know oh we have to kill anything that's not us and i think the more evolved that we become we see other animals are smarter and you know like that they deserve a place on this planet but i honestly think it's you know i'd be interesting to study the brain types or brain patterns of people who like feel the need to kill animals you know like nonsensically versus people who want to conserve them just interesting but yeah i mean the funny thing is is human beings are not instinctual just like killer whales are are we operate on learned behavior we can't a human child can't survive in the wilderness either can a human killer whale or a human killer whale. a human a human being can't survive in the yeah. wilderness just like a baby killer whale cannot survive without its family right and southern residents don't eat the prolific amount of marine mammals that are around them every day because they're not taught to eat them and human beings yeah. are either taught to protect things or taught not to protect things that's and, true yeah um, without education we're doomed we are absolutely doomed and everything else will survive us because yeah. we'll likely do such damage to our own populations that whatever animals are left by the time we have massive population collapse they'll be fine yeah. the, the, the world will go on without us absolutely will and it's it's just so interesting to me to see the, the disconnect that people have from the planet and they don't understand that like we cannot survive without the resources that the planet provides or like people that are like scared of dirt or bugs and things like that I just get so confused I'm like I don't understand or people that don't like to get wet and I'm like what do you mean like go swimming go outside but Experience you know it's your life yeah. exactly but there's so much to explore outside and there's so many different you know wild animals and I think that we can there's a lot that we can learn from 
nature and I I think it's just like that disconnect of people not knowing about nature but also not being encouraged to go outside is like a big driving factor and the reason why you know they like they don't care because I've noticed that people like I've just had different experiences where if you take somebody who maybe didn't have a certain perspective and you show them you know wildlife then all of a sudden their life is like you know they have a completely new perspective and they want to you know recycle or reduce their water or do like those little tiny things that's why our job is important that's why I feel good about doing the job that I do um and really trying to draw on every tour you know trying to teach if I can find one per you know it's that classic thing if you can affect one person yeah you know if you can have one positive conversation with someone give them a reason to you know want to have a more positive attitude toward conservation um even just voting i mean just any just taking any little steps in their lives having another conversation with one other person it spreads and and that's you know Mm -hmm. it's the best hope we have to you know stop you know, the imminent demise of so many species on the planet, not to mention ourselves in just general. Yeah. You know, we're we're already going to see a lot of changes in our lifetimes and our children's and grandchildren's lifetimes. And But uh, if we don't start, you know, continue to talk and continue to teach each other and continue to give people mm-hmm. opportunities where they can experience nature um, and open up their eyes a little bit, then everybody's just going to continue to get turned in to get, you know, mm-hmm. more focused on technology and yeah. you know not not and actually just so experiencing disconnected life. from yeah from life absolutely um that just kind of like sparked a thought i've <clears throat> you know throughout the course of this project i've kind of been asking myself like what makes us human like or like what differentiates us from other animals and like hearing you kind of say that i'm it makes me think that our ability to destroy ourselves is what makes us human because oh, you know other animals face trials and tribulations and they approach it by adapting and you know like with the southern residents we see they like they go out they go somewhere else and they find things and I think our inability to adapt like mentally culturally and and so many other facets is what is going to cause our demise at the end of the day but I really don't know if there's another species that can kill itself off quite the way that humans can like we have like the tools to not you know yeah. kill ourselves and destroy our planet but that looks like that's the route well, we're, we're taking. doing it we're doing it very knowingly and that's yeah. the funny thing like certain animals will have instinctual checks built into them mm-hmm. you know that if populations start growing they stop having as many babies and things Mm -hmm. like that and then there's the natural checks in the ecosystem that Mm -hmm. you know if there's you know too many of this animal then this animal population explodes and checks that animal and then the other animal population Mm -hmm. you know ends up you know being overpopulated for a while and it's those natural Mm -hmm. natural swings um humans we don't have that because we we spread like bacteria we don't Mm -hmm. we don't grow like a normal population of animals we grow exponentially like right. a bacteria or a virus and, exactly. and uh and we're knowingly destroying our ability to to live in this little this little ball of water yeah exactly it's interesting for sure so hopefully we can you know turn around and make some changes and i know that they had like a whole orca task force or something that was dedicated to the southern residents Um, but you know that's a whole other conversation yeah we need a bunch of other task force but i mean what's your take on the orca task force you know just like anything that involves politicians and then you know special interest groups and then you know emotional members of the public um 
you get some good stuff that come out of them and you get some not so good stuff coming out of them mm-hmm. um, our politicians are very much politicians whether they're liberal or conservative or whatever mm-hmm. they don't they're in the end they're thinking about elections and mm-hmm. I'm very not happy with Jay Inslee and very mm-hmm. embarrassed actually um, as a person that mm-hmm. has been a lifelong Democrat mm-hmm. um, at how members of the Democratic Party in the state of Washington have been behaving mm-hmm. um, really kind of ignoring science mm-hmm. um, I'm very deeply rooted in science right, and, um, as you and should be. to help form my <laughs> perspectives and I think that the um, the phrasing and the laws you know has you know the changes recently have been really influenced by politics um, not really taking in the true science and um, and then really just kind of playing toward the real emotional people that um that love the whales, that don't even really know why they love the whales, yeah. don't really use science to talk about why they love the whales. They're and, just like, they're cute. You know? And they just want to yeah. kind of, um, you know, that, that really talk talk a lot of trash about the whale watching industry and uh, don't really realize the pros and cons, aren't willing to really look at. Yeah. Because they've got a very, they're taking a very emotional, um, you know, perspective. On it, yeah. Instead of looking at the big picture. No, I definitely agree with that. I, um, like, working on whale watch boats, I have heard different opinions from people. Some people love it, some people hate it, some people don't have an opinion. I remember there was an older woman who was, like, telling me how terrible the whale watching boats were, and I'm like, you're literally talking to me on a whale watch boat, you purchased this ticket, and, like, okay, like, this makes sense. But I think it's it's really interesting because, you know, um, I ended up coming out here, I went to school in Florida, and the ecotourism that I witnessed when on dolphin research vessels was atrocious. Like, they would just drive all over the dolphins and things like that and when I spent a semester in Tanzania like they there were a lot of cars that would get like right on top of the animals in the middle of a hunt and things like that and I remember one day we ended up just turning around and not watching it was a lion trying to take down a zebra because we didn't want to contribute to the hundreds of cars around them Um, and I came up here and I wanted to see killer whales it was just like me on a trip and saw like how well behaved the whale watch boats were and like that like I just felt like it was a really good example and I've always thought that the San Juans is like how other like areas should model themselves because you guys absolutely, absolutely respect the animals and oh, like yeah. it's so clear that the captains at least everyone that I've worked with like genuinely cares about the animals and they don't want to get close to them but you know I also kind of see the whale watch boats as like protection around the whale sometimes because those big like wreck boats or the barges or other things that come through like you know they know where the whales are because you guys are right next to them or you honk at them oh, if they're trying absolutely. to drive over them. I, I can't tell you how many and and this is a big shout out to all the the guys that are you know um driving the larger vessels in the san juan islands mm-hmm. um versus you know us smaller boat drivers but those guys that are driving those those bigger boats you know they're all on traffic mm-hmm. on the on the vhf with with the vessel traffic scheme and everything and and they're calling the and they're calling the big ships and they're mm-hmm. letting them know miles and miles out mm-hmm. and I, I can't tell you how many times this year that mm-hmm. i I was out on the water and heard in the conversation, you know, the boat, the whale watching boat, boats taking out of their time talking with their passengers mm-hmm. to really have a group effort to give all of the traffic that's mm-hmm. out there as much notice as possible about where whales are and what they're doing so mm-hmm. that they can, you know, 
have the opportunity to make slight changes in their course mm -hmm. if if they're allowed, you know, those huge ships are very limited mm -hmm. in their ability to change their courses. Mm -hmm. um, but sometimes they have that ability. And, I mean, we're doing a lot of good out there. Mm -hmm. there I mean, there's certainly, you know, issues that I think we've really been tackling really well mm -hmm. um, over the past few years um, about staggering our arrival times, not having, um, trying to limit number of boats. While we're not being... We're not being forced to. You no. Know? We're, not, we're yeah. not being forced by any government agency or law mm -hmm. to do a lot of the things that we're doing out there. And we're, I think that we are setting an incredible standard Absolutely. to follow. And anybody that wants to demonize us um, really just is kind of unaware about the dynamic of what's going on mm -hmm. and, and has a very uninformed perspective and, mm -hmm. and uh, probably could use some more education about that, too. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I certainly don't want to give anybody a hard time that wants to... That, that you know loves the whales and wants to help protect the whales but there's ways to do that and there's definitely ways to yeah. to not do that and have, not having any whale watching boats out in the islands here would it would be it would be bad for the whales honestly I think I mean, so too because that's where people form those connections and you know it's like you know it would devastate you know people in the community to not be able to to be around those animals and i think that the san juans has done a really good job at finding that balance between connecting without harassing and you're like you're absolutely right like you know you guys set a really high standard and no one's forcing you to do that there's so many places that don't like the there are laws in place and they just don't get enforced or you know right. people don't want to make an effort and it's just so incredibly different here and it's yeah, I definitely agree with you. It's a very uninformed perspective. We yeah, we put a, we put so much time and energy into talking to each other out there um, over the broad Pacific Whale Watch Association, both the United States and Canada. And if if the public that demonizes whale watching really could listen to the amount of time and energy and talking that we all invest into helping everyone create the best possible wildlife experiences out there and ensure the you know the protection rule following and just you know the minimal amount of impact mm -hmm. um to the animals that we are viewing like i think they'd be astounded i, I think that they really just have no idea yeah. how much effort we put into it i mean the conversations start Mm -hmm. and, and at you know very early in the morning mm -hmm. we've got a lot of avenues to communicate and yeah. and, it, and it goes on through the night and into the next day where we are rehashing and and mm -hmm. talking about things that happened days before so that mm -hmm. we can use certain you know things that happen out there as ways to learn as ways to get better at what we're doing and right you know and and uh and i think it's been a long road um that's you know the path that started way before i started doing this mm -hmm. um but I think that I don't know that we could be doing a better job than we, we are, especially the past couple of years. I mean, it's it's really impressive. Yeah, no, 100% agreed. Um, it's definitely, like, really inspiring. And I think that, like, I want to get um, Jeff Friedman on here who started the Pacific Whale Watch Association and, like, hear his take on things and his recommendations to other, like, you know, areas that do ecotourism or that just, like, want to manage animals better or like you know human interaction with animals um yeah, yeah well yeah jeff did jeff start the pwwa or, did I he, or he at least he's just the uh president oh, maybe he's just the president he's the president okay. on the u.s side okay um brian goodramont was before him and uh but jeff's been president for four or five years now mm -hmm. i think yeah um you'd have to talk to other 
company owners. Yeah. About that. <laughs> I stay out of the politics. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Um, well, do you have anything else you want to add? Because I think you definitely answered more questions than I even had, so. Okay. Well, good. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I mean, I think, you know, if there's anything that you can do to help the whales, it's uh, get rid of some dams. Yeah, for sure. And uh, I don't think any amount of not eating salmon, um, I don't think any amount of, you know, making further and further distances is going to help southern resident killer whales. Um, without putting more salmon out into this area, mm -hmm. um, those whales are going to be seen here less and less mm -hmm. until they're not seen here at all. And, and you know, we need to start investing millions and millions of dollars into fish hatcheries, in my opinion. And yeah. we need to be dumping fish mm -hmm. into the sound. Um, otherwise, I just don't know what the future of these animals. Ken Balcom said when the number hits 70, he's going to stop counting. Oh, gosh. Yeah. So we're at 75? Three. 70, 73? 73. Yeah, we're down to 73. 73. Mm -hmm. And Ken's been researching these animals um, since I was probably born. And, mm -hmm. uh, so Ken said he's going to stop counting at 70. So the clock is ticking. Hope what, we are, can, what are we, we going to do? Turn it around. What are we going to do? There's so much like effort and media and so many hands in this. If we can't save these animals, that's going to be like a huge failure in my opinion, just like as people, because there's no reason why we can't, you know, we need to adapt. They've adapted. It's yeah. Yeah. I would, I would love it mm -hmm. if my child, who is going to be born in the next couple of weeks yeah would be able to see these animals and have memory of them which means they'd be they'd still be around in mm -hmm. 10 years yeah you know and uh and who knows they they might not be but yeah. they could they could who knows maybe they just need to stay mm -hmm. on the outside but um it makes me happy to know anytime that they're not around because hopefully that means they're finding fish somewhere right and always you know that's when people tell me that mm -hmm. southern residents aren't around, mm -hmm. you know, and then they're bummed. Mm -hmm. I say, well, you should just be hopeful that wherever they are, are that mm -hmm. they're finding fish. Yeah. Because that is the only hope that we have for them. So. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, yeah. Go vote. <laughs> yeah. All that stuff. Well, thank you. I really appreciate it. Yeah, you're welcome. Mm -hmm.